This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Welcome to this bonus edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today, we have a treat for our listeners. We have Vice Chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, Bruce Landsberg. Bruce has a distinguished career in aviation and in safety in particular. He started his career as an Air Force missile launch officer, then left the Air Force. He was a CFI while he worked his way through grad school. He worked for Cessna in Wichita and then flight safety. And then for 22 years, he held my position and a little more here at AOPA, running the Air Safety Institute and the Air Safety Foundation. He then failed at retirement and moved on to the National Transportation Safety Board, where he became vice chairman. He's got over 7,000 hours in general aviation. He's ATP rated, CFII, MEI. He owns and flies a Beechcraft Bonanza and lives out of South Carolina, but commutes to Washington, D.C. frequently. Bruce, we're so fortunate to have somebody with your background at the NTSB. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Well, Richard, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. Uh, you're way too kind about my uh, biography. We don't do these things by ourselves. We have a lot of help on the way. Well, I just want to take a moment to thank you for how you've treated me since I came in the role after you. You held it for some 22 years, so you had a lot of passion in, around it. And all you've ever done has been extremely supportive of me and answered the phone when I call for different advice. So I'm grateful to have you as a partner in safety. It is truly my pleasure, Richard. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today, don't we? We do. So, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. But the thing I really want to talk about is you guys, the NTSB, you published your comments about the report of the Ethiopian 737 MAX 8 accident. Ethiopia produced their own report, but in an unusual fashion, the NTSB released on their website your comments to that report. And I think that's such an interesting thing. One, the fact that you did that is unusual. And two, even though it was an airliner and a, you know, a massive airline 737, there are some good lessons learned here for general aviation pilots. And I thought we'd chat about both those things this morning. Absolutely. So, Mr. Vice Chairman, if we can, let's summarize the accident very briefly for people to get their head back in it. Back three years ago in 2019, all of us were very familiar with this accident. So do you mind summarizing just the events of the accident itself? Very simply, we have a uh, Boeing 737 MAX on takeoff, and just shortly after becoming airborne, the crew starts to have a problem with controllability and pitch trim, the aircraft wants to pitch over, 
and they are having a difficult time managing it. And ultimately, they don't get very high, and they hit the ground at above 400 knots. Mm. And uh, there are obviously no survivors. And so Mm. this is the second 737 MAX to crash. Uh, The first one was an Indonesian aircraft that uh, crashed, uh, I believe, in September. I think that's right. Yeah, about five months earlier. And and then Ethiopia and 157 people perished. And then we all learned about this now infamous MCAS system, which was an anomaly that happened in both of the accidents. So if we start with the, um, maybe the place to start with is the Ethiopian report and then the NTSB's response to that. So what did the Ethiopians say about the accident? Well, basically, to take it right down to the core area, they basically said, you know, the airplane was not properly designed and FAA didn't approve the designs and it was the runaway trim stabilizer situation that was caused by the MCAS system. Uh, The crew had no opportunity to be able to control the aircraft. So they put everything over onto Boeing. The entire cause of the accident from the Ethiopian agency was the MCAS. Yeah. Yeah. When we got in and looked at it, we said, well, no, that's actually not quite the case. And the reason was in the Indonesian crash, we were working without any prior knowledge. Okay. Four months prior to the Ethiopian crash, FAA and Boeing, FAA issued an emergency airworthiness directive to all Boeing MAX operators, and Boeing put out what they call an operational uh, management uh, bulletin to uh, explain what had transpired. And the guidance in there was pretty clear. They said, and I quote, If uncommanded stabilizer trim movement is experienced in conjunction with an erroneous AOA flight deck effect, the instructed course of action is to use the stabilizer cutout switches per the existing runaway stabilizer procedure. So there was very clearly speculation, perhaps even a little more than that, that both Boeing and the FAA sort of knew what was going on. And the Ethiopian Accident Investigation Board, the EAIB, which I'll refer to them uh, going forward, were invited to come to Boeing's simulator and flight test control rig in Seattle to see how the flight deck cues that were available to the uh, accident flight crew members and help them to understand how the whole system worked and the the forces that they would encounter. And Boeing was kind enough to invite the NTSB board members to fly a 737 simulator, MAX simulator as well. And I had the privilege of doing that. And we had about a 30 minute briefing on how the system worked and what to expect and how to disable it. And I remember it very, very clearly. So I got into the left seat of the 737. I don't have a lot of 737 time, I might add, but uh, you know, they fly like airplanes and you follow procedure. So they put us into the exact situation that the Ethiopian crew 
would have experienced. So we're early in the climb out. They failed the left angle of attack indicator at 44 seconds into the takeoff roll, which is exactly where the flight data recorder said that the AOA had a problem. So immediately we start to get forward trim as the MCAS system is starting to uh, respond. And the response for the crew is pretty simple. As soon as you're getting uncommanded trim applications, you can use manual uh, electric trim to disable it momentarily. And that's what's unusual about the MCAS system is that it will re-engage itself after you've activated the uh, electric trim. So a brief commentary on the MCAS. The way the MCAS works is it takes inputs from the angle of attack indicators and it adjusts the pitch of the aircraft down if it senses that that angle of attack is too high. So the MCAS will automatically move the stabilizer and push the nose of the aircraft down, which is what it was doing in this case. It was erroneously sensing that the nose was too high because there was a problem with an angle of attack indicator. We'll get to that. But the MCAS was pushing it down, and what you're explaining is you can overcome that, and Boeing and the FAA had made it clear that you can overcome that with the electric trim and then those stabilizer cutouts, which as you mentioned. Exactly, exactly. And what's also interesting about this, and it goes a little contrary to what we typically think of, the MCAS system doesn't seem to engage when the aircraft is on autopilot. It only engages when the pilots are manually flying. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and if flaps are deployed, it also will not engage. So the crew is taking off there, I assume, in manual mode, and as they retract the flaps, that triggers the MCAS system erroneously to start to respond to all of this. Mm -hmm. So Boeing's training for us, verbal, and the recommendation is as soon as you get an uncommanded trim situation, essentially think of it as runaway trim, you are to use the manual electric trim if you want to, but the electric trim, and then reduce power to 80%, pitch up 10 degrees, that's to slow the aircraft down, and then use the uh, stabilizer cutout switches, which are located at the back of the pedestal, or two of them, and that disables all of the MCAS situation. Mm-hmm. And then you can fly the airplane with manual trim. And I believe is in your report that you mentioned, the NTSB, I say you, the NTSB mentions in their notes that those actions were not taken by the Ethiopian pilots or they were not taken soon enough or in the appropriate order, right? That is correct. They did not take those actions. And this is where we should probably point out, and this is a benefit, of course, to all pilots, If there's an emergency airworthiness directive put out on your aircraft, pay attention to it for heaven's sakes. You know, there's a good reason for it. And it means that something has gone badly wrong and it needs to be addressed and you better pay attention. And I think that in your report, I read where the NTSB believes that Boeing and the FAA had released this information. It had been out for four months. And by this point, should have been well-known, and the Ethiopian Airlines had a responsibility to make sure it was well-known, 
and that the pilots knew how to abide by it. That is exactly correct. Our team made four visits to Ethiopia between March 12th, which was two days after the crash, and September 7th for progress and coordination meetings. And we provided detailed technical reports on the AOA and MCAS and also on the U.S. aircraft certification systems. Our team was not included in any post-accident interviews or on-site data gathering relative to flight crew operations or the human performance aspects of the investigation. Now, is that unusual? Did that bother you or, or is that typical? I would say it's a little unusual um, because, as you know from our domestic investigations, we always look at everything relative to a particular crash. And that's going to include the crew and all of the human performance kinds of things. And that is what seems to be missing largely in the Ethiopian report. But we didn't stop there. We also provided the EA. IB with our process for how to conduct operational factors and human performance investigations, including what areas to investigate, documents to request, uh, positions within the organization to interview, and even down to the questions to ask. Hmm. So it wasn't because of lack of effort on our part. Yeah. I wonder... One of the lessons to me that comes out of this, and I mentioned it, I have a TikTok channel where I talk about accidents and show short videos. One of the lessons learned that came out of this for me is that I don't think the Ethiopian Investigation Board is independent of their civil aviation authority, right? They fall underneath that, whereas you guys, the NTSB, is independent of the FAA. And to me, that separation provides us some healthy, strong friction in the aviation environment. Well, it does. And by design, again, this may be repetitive for some of your listeners, but NTSB was formed in 1968 and put under the Department of Transportation. In 1974, then-President Nixon said, you know, we need to have NTSB as a separate entity because there is too much political influence from the secretary, DOT, and, and within that whole organization. And so the board was made completely independent. Now that infuriates some people who would like to be able to put their thumb on the scales, but it allows us with total freedom to call things as we see them. And um, that's maybe one of the few reasons why I decided to come out of retirement to go to work for them. It's such an important principle in in safety to have an independent objective arm to be able to make recommendations, call things as they see them. It's not implying that you're always right or the independent arm is always right, but it is saying that you can try to eliminate some of the political pressure that's natural to come. And I thought I saw some of that in the Ethiopian report, just the – their unwillingness really to take a hard look at some of the issues involved in the Ethiopian Airlines, which is, of course, a national airlines, and some of the crew uh, actions there. That's touchy stuff to get into. And if you don't have the independence, it's very difficult for you to make those kind of calls and recommendations. I felt like we saw some of that in the report the Ethiopians distributed. 
Well, it's, it's human nature, Richard, for people to not want to point fingers at themselves. And it, as you said, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable. It's interesting, too. Uh, I was reading some of the responses uh, on some of the things on the Internet, which, of course, as you know, has to be true. And NTSB was accused because we, we put this uh, supplemental information out to say, well, you know, we, we got bought off by Boeing. Well, I would just point out to you that um, none of the board members nor the staff uh, get campaign contributions or bonuses from anybody. So um, uh, we have no incentive to pull things one way or the other. And our guidance is just let the facts be. And also to your point, we're not perfect. Occasionally, uh, mistakes are made, something is missed and so on. And we have a process for that called uh, a petition for reconsideration. And so if there's new credible data that's brought out uh, subsequent to our finding, then we are required to go back in and take a look at it. And we will use different uh, investigators to review it so that the primary investigators who did it, if they made a mistake, don't have the opportunity to uh, put their thumb on the scales, if you will, and justify whatever problem they may have had the first time. Hey, listeners, if you're a fan of aviation and this podcast, we hope you'll consider becoming a member of AOPA. AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and general aviation and supports our freedom to fly. Whether you're just getting started in aviation or have been flying for years, you'll find the resources and support you need to get in the air and keep flying with AOPA. Become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll join a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. So going back to your, your the NTSB's comments on the report that you released on your website, in that, it seemed like to me, if I read it, the NTSB said, okay, we agree that MCAS was a cause of the accident, but an equal cause of the accident was the pilot's improper response to the MCAS malfunction. Seemed like you saw those two both as causal factors. Absolutely. Uh, Let me read you specifically. So we have the uncommanded airplane nose down inputs from MCAS due to erroneous AOA values. And this is what we wanted to be added. The flight crew's inadequate use of manual electric trim and management of thrust, that's reducing to 80%, to maintain airplane control. But there are some additional contributing factors, which I think should be included. Mm -hmm. The operator's failure, that's Ethiopian Airlines, to ensure that its flight crews were prepared to properly respond to uncommanded stabilizer trim movement in the manner outlined in uh, Boeing's flight crew operating manual bulletin and the FAA's emergency airworthiness directive which were both issued four months prior to the accident. And this is important, the airplane's impact with a foreign object, likely a bird strike. And I think we should talk a little about that. Yeah, please. Collins Aerospace, which built the AOA, went and looked in great detail at the flight data recorder and they noted as they looked at this, because they've had experience with prior areas and bird strikes with uh, AOA indicators, that this had absolutely the signature of a collision with something. 
And that occurred at 44 seconds into the takeoff roll. Collins invited the EAIB to come and look at a reconstruction of the situation here in the United States. The EAIB chose not to do that. The other interesting thing is that the Addis Ababa airport where the crash occurred has had a number of bird strike incidents. In fact, in one study uh, done by the Addis Ababa University a while back, they recorded 33 bird strikes in one year. Mm. And more recently, in 2018, a uh, Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 67 ingested an eagle into one of the engines and had an in-flight shutdown. And the EAIB recommended that the airport authority take measures to reduce the bird strike risk. So there's a lot of other things that go into this besides just the Boeing design issue. And we do not exonerate Boeing in any sense of the, the word. And we made a uh, some recommendations to the FAA in terms of the human factors aspect of changing how the FAA and our manufacturers take a look at uh, designing human factors in these complex cockpits. There's another thing that I thought was interesting that I read in your notes, I believe the NTSB's notes, and that was how the cockpit voice recorder script was managed by the Ethiopian Investigation Board. Can you walk us through that, Mr. Vice Chairman? I think normally you take the text and you either play the audio, you have that available to people, or you provide the text verbatim. That was not done exactly that way. Am I reading that right? Under normal circumstances, we have the ability when we download a cockpit voice recorder, we have a very extensive laboratory, which of course is all soundproofed and multiple people can go in and listen simultaneously and they can take out distracting noises. I mean, it's, it's very, very impressive, uh, probably the most sophisticated in the world. So in this case, we had a good uh, CVR and what happens is that we will listen to the thing. Board members and uh, accident investigators can come in and listen in the lab to that. Now, our regulatory authority requires us not to release those recordings. We can release transcripts, but out of respect for families and to not uh, sensationalize things, yeah. we never have and never will release those recordings. Transcripts, however, are part of the investigation and they can and should be released as part of the investigation so people can see exactly what the crew was doing and what they were discussing. And I think in the transcripts, when the NTSB does it, you'll make very clear either the, the exact transcript itself and if there's any editorial comments, they come after the transcript. My understanding is that wasn't done in the transcripts the Ethiopians released, that they were modified, if you will, a little bit, and they were also providing editorial comments in between some of the, uh, some of the actual transcripts. Um, I'll have to agree that uh, they took a different approach than typically what we do. Yeah. So it was a fascinating 
report that the NTSB released, and to me, just because I study the NTSB and yeah, I think what the NTSB does is so important to safety, I have at times been critical of the NTSB when I think they needed to step up or maybe miss the boat, but so important to aviation safety uh, in this country. So the fact that you released your, your own report, I knew that was unusual, and I appreciate you coming on and explaining why you did that, because I don't think we hit that fully, but the Ethiopians chose not to include the NTSB's comments in their report, and that's that's not standard protocol, right? It's not standard protocol, and I guess it certainly raises questions as to why uh, they chose not to do that. As I said, there were three drafts that were put out, and we responded to each one in timely fashion. And they chose not to uh, include our our response to the to the final draft, which is of course what was released separately. So I think there will be certainly some questions uh, raised at ICAO about how this went down. And uh, our role in all of this is to prevent recurrence of any kind of, of crash, no matter what it happens to be. And unfortunately, you know when you kind of pull things one way or the other, that changes it. And when I got on the board, I didn't understand this before, but when I came on the board, I got a a clearer understanding. Our role, as I say, is to prevent future crashes. The legal system is intended to deal with the financial aspect and redress of grievances. And so the objectives are quite different. And I understand that, but uh, people need to clearly understand why we do things the way that we do. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, not perfect, adjusting. And uh, I've certainly appreciated that the NTSB is working hard to get through the backlog and get investigations out sooner. That's been my biggest gripe with the NTSB is how important those investigations are in accelerating the timeline. Topic for another podcast one day, but I know there's been some really good work in it. And I see them now. I see you guys coming out with some reports inside of nine months sometimes, which was unheard of two or three years ago. That is a work in progress. I'm pleased to say that uh, the backlog continues to be whittled away. No organization is perfect. I've never worked for a perfect organization, even when I run some of them. It pains me to say that, but it's the reality. And um, We are making progress. We're not there yet, but uh, I think you're going to see it get a lot better. So if we can, let's talk about now transition to some of the lessons learned that come out of this accident for general aviation pilots. And I I know it's a big airline and there's a lot of process and a lot of complexity in their airplanes, but I saw a couple of lessons that came out of this that we can all use as takeaways. But I wonder... I, I want to ask your view of that first. You have a bonanza. You fly all over the place, 7,000-plus hours of GA flying. What are some of the takeaways you see here that we GA pilots can learn? Well, I think one of the, the well-known ones is trim anomalies either misset prior to takeoff or rarely, but it happens occasionally, uh, autopilot malfunction or trim runaway is, is very serious business. And every pilot that has electric trim and an autopilot on their aircraft needs to thoroughly understand how to disable that. And we periodically will see a crash where a pilot has fought with the autopilot 
In other words, maybe the autopilot is either pitching up or pitching down, whatever it happens to be, and the pilot attempts to override it by just pulling on the trim. And that's like trying to take a bone away from a dog. And you know what happens in that circumstance. The dog pulls back in the other direction and ultimately bites you. The airplane does the same thing. So there's typically a big red button right under the pilot's thumb where you can disable the trim. And then there are multiple other ways to disable, including a circuit breaker. On my airplane, I have the uh, electric trim uh, circuit breaker collared. I know right where it is, and it's got a collar on it, so I can pull it immediately if I have an autopilot or a trim problem. Well, I so agree with that first lesson learned. And I have the benefit, like you did in this job, to fly a lot of different airplanes. And one of the things that I do is when I'm flying an airplane that either I know it or it's new to me, if I'm going to use the autopilot, and especially if this involves IMC flying, I want to know where those circuit breakers are so I can immediately locate them and pull them if I suspect any kind of problem. First, the disconnect switch on the yoke, but I've had it where that disconnect switch doesn't seem to be working. And there have been a couple of times in my GA flying, Navion and once in an A36, where I had to reach over and just pull the circuit breakers. Because in the moment, I didn't really have time to figure out, is it me? Did I misset something? Or why am I, why am I fighting with this trim so much? Why won't it disconnect? I don't care. I'm just pulling power out of the system. Absolutely. And, and there are other ways to deal with it. The most draconian is, of course, to kill the master switch, but that's a tool in your toolbox if you need to do those kinds of things. And this gets into the aviate, navigate, communicate situation. If you're IFR, obviously, you'd like not to leave the parting line with ATC. If you have time, fine, say something. Say, I've got a trim problem. I'll get back to you. I'm going uh, Nordo for a moment. If not, Take care of the airplane first, and then we can go back and figure out where we need to go from there. So know, know how to take power out of those automated systems, your trim or your autopilot. So any other lessons learned that you think of? Well, I have previously mentioned if there's an emergency AD that comes out, pay attention to it. Now, no aircraft owner likes to get a letter from the FAA under any circumstances. But, you know, usually it means this is going to cost me a lot of money. Well, <laughs> sometimes that's true. Sometimes it isn't. But there's usually a pretty good reason as to why these things have been put out. Now, not everybody will agree with that. And I understand. And there have been occasions where, uh, you know, AOPA has, has had a difference of opinion. And, and that's fine. But until that gets sorted through, Believe what it says, pay attention. The manufacturer will also put out what they call mandatory service bulletins. Those are not required under Part 91 operations. They are required for Part 135. Once again, take some time, read it, understand it. And if it happens to be followed up or in conjunction with a uh, airworthiness directive, yeah, you better comply with it. Yeah, great advice to make a conscious decision on those service bulletins. You know, you, you don't want to say, oh, it's a service bulletin. I don't have to do it. And much better to read it and make a conscious decision of whether or not you should do it based on your circumstance and your airplane. Well, the other thing is 
as we saw so clearly in this crash and had demonstrated to us, had the crew of the second airplane, the Ethiopian aircraft, had they had the opportunity to learn what happened to the Indonesian crew, they would have been able to manage this without losing the aircraft. And as I said, I'm proof of that because I was given the opportunity to fly this scenario. Going back just a little bit further, I mean, I think we all would agree that this certainly wasn't Boeing's or FAA's finest hour. And this whole circumstance should become a business school case study, both for manufacturers as well as organizations, business schools, on how not to do things. Um, the whole MCAS system was designed to help Boeing compete with Airbus by making the airplane easy to fly and to not increase the cost. And unfortunately, the financial decisions got wrapped up in the operational ones, and that's always a bad trade-off. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, we want to be careful. In my read of this says that was a very serious problem that the crew was dealing with. It happened at low altitude in a critical phase of flight. It was by no means an easy situation. On the other hand, training and proper reaction could have saved the airplane. That's what I read. When I read the NTSB's report, that was my takeaway from it. One other, I guess, sort of final point is in large organizations, usually it happens, at least the initial response is that the last person in the accident chain is the one to blame. Well, oftentimes, and what we found is that there are organizational issues that go much, much deeper, and the root cause often originates quite a bit higher. And then we have what we call a normalization of deviance, and things just kind of roll downhill from there. And the whole idea, and I know people are maybe tired of hearing about safety management systems, but the whole idea is to take a systems approach to things and say, let's not wait until the last link of the chain, the, the person who's right in extremists trying to deal with this, let's break this chain much farther up because then if something else fails, we have multiple other steps in place to mitigate it. Mm -hmm. And for personal flying, you are the organization. We are the organization as owners and pilots in command. So it requires you to do a little more assessment. That's that whole risk management business that we always talk about as to well, what if this doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? And so on. How far down do you want to go? Do you want to leave just one backstop before having a, a really bad day? Or should we try to leave two or three? So in case we miss the first one or two, we still got two or three more to go. Hmm. So another lesson learned, I thought, was I believe that the pilots in the MAX, the Ethiopian 737 MAX, never pulled the throttles out of auto throttle, so they were at takeoff thrust for the entire duration of the flight into the crash. And so reducing power anytime you're in a nose-low, out-of-control situation where you're accelerating, nose-low, power back. And I think of it as nose-down, power-down. So that, to me, is something SGA pilots can take away from this situation. And then you think, well, why didn't they do it? I've done a lot of research and work on the human mind and our decision-making process under crisis, and it turns out that tunnel vision, 
when you're in a crisis mode is a very real thing. And the more that you fear for your safety and your life, the tighter that gets, the more your tunnel vision gets closer and closer and restricted as your, as your mind, as your brain focuses you on what it thinks is the most critical issue. So in this case, these guys thought, and they were right, that pitch and controlling the aircraft was their most critical issue. And at some point, as they became so fearful of their lives and saving the airplane, that's all they could focus on. And that's why a relatively, you would think, well, that's a relatively common sense step. Why didn't they reduce the power? And I think it was in that moment, all that critical time element accelerating and then becoming more and more fearful is how the tunnel vision maybe is what was at play there where they just forgot to reduce the power. No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the antidote to the fear and, and startle factor is constantly training, reviewing it, thinking about it. And one of the things I do in the hours when I'm aloft periodically is looking at the ground and saying, you know, that would be a good place for forced landing. Well, if the engine stopped right now, what would I do? And I actually have, I use a a gump checklist, not only for landing, but also for engine out. I don't know if you've heard that one before. No, I haven't. Not, Not for engine out. Okay, well, uh, the G stands for two things, glide. So let's get the uh, proper glide set up. Next, it may very well be a fuel problem. So let's make sure we got gas going in the right direction. And gas has two functions. One is tank, and the other might be an electric fuel pump or ox pump if you have it. U doesn't really apply right here, but that's undercarriage. Well, okay, we'll let that go. Then we got two M's, and that's mixture and magnetos. So is there something I can do with the mixture? Is there something, maybe switch mags to see what's going to happen? The P is two things as well. Pump, if you didn't get it before, and if it hasn't started the engine at that point, if you got it earlier, probably best to turn it off. No point in putting more fuel in to add to the fire if that's what's going to happen in the, the bottom. And the last thing is, if you have a control pitch prop, is to go ahead and feather the propeller if that's an option that's available to you because that will increase your glide distance. So if you kind of have gump on the mind, if you will, it helps you to start dealing with the problem that's facing you. Yeah, that's a really interesting adaptation of that uh, that gump checklist, which almost everybody who flies retractable gear airplanes uses. So. That's a good one. Yeah, just a thought. Well, Mr. Vice Chairman, I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your insight into this uh, MAX 737 issue that one is just of interest to us. And then I just think there's a lot of lessons learned that come out of it, both from a systemic standpoint and for us as GA pilots, like we talked about. Is there anything we we didn't chat about that would be worth talking about in this situation? You know, this this whole situation was a tragedy all the way around. And to me, the only reason to investigate uh, accidents and crashes is to make sure they don't happen again. And that means putting out an absolutely objective and factual report as best we can. Yeah, there will probably be some people who um, have to hold themselves accountable, and that's not pleasant, but that's how we move forward. 
That is how we move forward. Well, thanks so much for your time, sir, and I look forward to seeing you around the patch. Safe travels, everyone. Thank you so much. It's always interesting to chat with Bruce Landsberg. He's got a lot of experience in general aviation, and you know his safety background came from really started when he was a missile officer in the Air Force, and safety, you know, incredibly important when you're handling nukes. So he just brought that background through all of his aviation career, and always interesting opinions and insight. The Ethiopian accident, just like the Indonesian accident of the 737 Max, was such a tragedy. And Boeing and the FAA certainly had some big lessons learned on mistakes that were made in the rollout of that system, the MCAS system and the training and the certification. And, of course, that took, I think, some 20 months or so before we were finally comfortable, we being the U.S. system, with putting the 737 MAX back in operation. So there were certainly lessons learned there. The big takeaway here is the NTSB saw more to the report than that. They agreed that the MCAS system was at fault and a cause of the accident. But they went further to say that the aircraft was recoverable. And had the pilots known about the procedure or Ethiopian Airlines had ensured the procedure was well known and they could operate by it, that the airplane was recoverable. And we talked about some lessons learned for us as general aviation pilots, and that is know how to take the power out of your system, the automatic system. For us, it's circuit breakers. For the 737 MAX, it was those stabilizer uh, cutout switches. Know where those are so you can immediately access them if you fly with electric trim or an autopilot. And then train yourself so that your response is going to be when you're out of control and accelerating in a descent, power back. Sitting here at zero knots in 1G, it's easy to think, well, that's a common sense step. But remember, we talked about how as things begin to tighten and stress builds in your mind, you will become more focused. Tunnel vision will become a more critical thing that you will be dealing with, and you will get tunnel vision on the thing that you perceive to be the most critical action. And it means you will disregard some peripheral issues that are important for you to address. The only way to overcome that is training, very specific rote memory training over and over again so you have those automatic muscle reactions. Nose down, power down when you're accelerating out of control. And then the vice chairman, Bruce, had some very good comments about paying attention to service bulletins and ADs and make very conscious decisions on those for how they impact you and your airplane and abide by them. So, A tragedy for sure, the Ethiopian Airlines incident, but out of all these, obviously, we hope to learn some lessons and prevent them in the future. Thanks for joining us on this bonus edition of There I Was. We'll provide links to the NTSB's comments on the Ethiopian report so that you can read them yourself. They're not really that long, a page or two long, I think, if I remember right. And we'll also have some pictures there that you can reference in terms of this whole discussion. Join me in thanking Charles Conklin for his donations that help us continue these podcasts. And if you'd like to donate and help us with the There I Was podcast, you can find us at airsafetyinstitute.org. That's all one word, airsafetyinstitute.org. Until next time, alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. <laughs>